If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to uh, open to John chapter 2. So that's John chapter 2, and we're going to read from uh, verse 1 through to verse 10 of that chapter. So John chapter 2 from verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 75 to 115 litres. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. And he thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. Well, uh, you might have noticed in the last verse of that uh, reading, the word signs, we're focusing on that word signs today. And uh, there are some signs uh, we're keen to see and some that we aren't so keen to see. So if you've been invited to a new small group or uh, some other activity and it happens to be at night, you might have driven around an unfamiliar suburb peering at the curbs and the letterboxes trying to spot uh, that number you're after. That's a sign you'd kind of like to see. Uh, the boys and I were in the car coming home from school one day not so long ago and we saw a sign that you didn't really want to see and that was on the back of a septic truck where it said, we deliver milk on the weekends. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out when I googled it, uh, there are various trucks driving out around with that sign on them all around the world, so it's an in-joke in the uh, septic industry, obviously. <laughs> uh, the Gospel of John's all about signs and... Uh, in a way, we sometimes would like a sign from God to tell us, you know, what to do today. How can I know I'm in the will of God today? What, what does God really want from me? Maybe we think that we would be prepared for a bit of rebuke and a bit of a stern talking to if just we could arrange a, a booking, book an interview with God and have God come and talk to us, you know, um, God to man <laughs> and uh, in two seats and just uh, right, lay it on the line, tell me where we're at, tell me what I'm doing right, tell me what I'm doing wrong. I'll cop it on the chin because I just would like to know. Or we would like a sign from God to assure us of his reality or his existence or to just make it really clear which denomination we should give our allegiance to. You know, something really direct. Why does God have to be so subtle? It's interesting the way signs work in the Gospel of John. This little passage about um, the wedding at Cana is at a pretty important juncture in the Gospel. And some of this stuff I've really just enjoyed exploring in the last week or two. 
I didn't know that after that opening prologue, um, David was talking about the first 18 verses and how they talk about the Word of God. And that's such a profound passage that you would not believe the amount of literature that has been written on that, presenting Jesus as the Logos, as the Word. So that's the Gospel of John's big opening kind of theme statement to really make us think. Following that, there's an opening week of Jesus' ministry. And so, first of all, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come and they witness John the Baptist preaching and they want to know who he is and is he the Messiah. That's the first day of a week of Jesus revealing himself to a first group of people and accumulating a little set of followers in that first week. And so it turns out that if you track all those statements in chapter 1 where it says the next day and then the next day, and finally at the beginning of our passage it says on the third day, if you string them together, it ends up that this is the seventh day of the first week, the, the miracle in Cana. And so each day has been a new step in Jesus revealing himself and confronting people and, and acquiring his first disciples. And this is kind of the culmination of the opening week. Discovered just this morning that if you go uh, up to the other end of the gospel in a way and you look at chapter 12, uh, that also starts the last week of Jesus' ministry and they both start in the same place, the town of Bethany and the area of Bethany. So Jesus' ministry is flanked by an opening week and then a closing week. And the whole gospel is really quite clearly structured in a similar way. So that chapter 12 is a bit of a doorway chapter. Leading up to that, from everything after the prologue, is dominated by seven signs that Jesus does to authenticate his identity. And the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11 is the last of those seven. So wedding at Cana is the first Lazarus's resurrection is the last and the most dramatic, and each of them is challenging the audience to decide what they're going to believe about Jesus. Will they receive him or will they reject him? Chapter 12 then kind of looks back on these seven signs and the reception that Jesus has had and concludes that most of the people who witness Jesus don't believe in him despite the graphic nature of these signs. Um, but implicitly, there's this little group of disciples who do believe. And the rest of the gospel, or the next five chapters, you know, the big upper room discourse, chapters 13 to 17, show Jesus really kind of investing intensely in the lives of the disciples before he leaves them. So there's this strong focus on their preparation that goes beyond what the other gospels show us as well. Then there's kind of the sign of Jesus' death and resurrection in chapters 18 to 20. And an epilogue in chapter 21 that, in a sense, takes everything back to the beginning. So Jesus returns to find his disciples back fishing again and galvanises them for the next phase of their lives uh, without him with a miracle of the fish. And it's back at the sea and they're back kind of being called a second time. So it's as if the circle's gone all the way around and the disciples are having a second call. And that's how the gospel ends. It's interesting that wherever the synoptic gospels, which is the other three, Matthew, Mark and Luke, wherever they describe Jesus' miracles, they use the word dunamis, and that means powers, like miraculous signs, powerful things. When John talks about those same events, he uses this word signs and never uses that word dunamis. So he's making a different point. And I take the word sign to just indicate that it's trying to communicate something that is significant. That's the nature of a sign, that it's trying to get something across. Not just uh, a strong impression, not just amazement, 
but actually to tell us something about Jesus. So let me talk uh, briefly through uh, this same passage again. Thanks to David for reading that. So we've said it's on the third day, and this is the third day from the fifth day. And they count inclusively here. So it's day five, day six, day seven. Cana is not a particularly special place. It seems to be a little bit of a no-name place. Um, Nathaniel has just asked, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But I think Cana is even smaller, if I understand rightly. Uh, Nathaniel has come from Cana. And Cana is going to be a little bit of a framing thing as well because at the very end, uh, in that miracle by the sea, one of those present is Nathaniel and it only tells us then that he's from Cana. So... Just one mention at the start, one at the end, and this miracle in the middle. And the third sign happens at Cana as well. Uh, Jesus' mother was there. He's never, she's never named by John, never called Mary, just Jesus' mother. And Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding, says verse 2. So when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no wine left. There's a lot that's not said there, isn't there? You have to read between the lines, but somehow sons know how to do that when their mothers talk to them. And so Jesus correctly infers that she wants him to do something about it. She doesn't have to say any more. They have no wine left. There's almost a little bit of tension here between Jesus and uh, Mary. Uh, Interesting kind of mother-son dynamic. Maybe she feels as though she still has the kind of inherent right by by right of procreation to um, give him instructions for the remainder of his life. Maybe the odd mother has felt that way. Um, and maybe Jesus as the son um, disputes that having given birth to a person allows you to, to control them for the rest of their lives. And so commentators have talked about whether Jesus' response is a little bit strong here. It just In the Greek it just says, you know, woman, what is there between me and you? It sounds rather distancing and rather kind of abrupt. It's a little bit hard to tell, I think, without being Greek and ancient, um, just whether there's a little bit of sharpness or a little bit of... Um, a little bit of a rebuke but it's pretty clear from verse 4 that Jesus has a ministry and an identity that Mary uh, doesn't know all about the fact that she has um, given him birth and raised him doesn't mean that she really fully understands him and maybe she needs to come to realize that there's more to him than than she knows and she's not going to be able to uh, direct his activities and kind of uh, guide and govern him Uh, he has a whole phase of life opening up that she's going to have to increasingly let go, uh, increasingly relinquish control. Now, Jesus seems concerned that if he reveals himself with a miracle now, that it's going to be premature. He says, my time has not yet come. And if you go watching where that phrase turns up in this gospel, it seems primarily to relate to his death, uh, that his time will be his time of glory. And in the gospel of John, his time of glory is... Um, being exalted to the cross. So in other parts of the Old Testament, in the New Testament, for Christ to be exalted is what happens at the end when he returns to glory with the Father. But in the Gospel of John, being exalted is being lifted up on the cross. He says, if I'm lifted up, I'll draw everyone to myself. Um, When you look at five, do you think uh, Mary's taken the point? His mother told the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. It's very clever, actually. Because she hasn't um, argued with Jesus, but she's put him in a position where he has to do something. (laughs) Because now the servants are going to come up and say, okay, we're waiting for you. So fascinating family dynamic there. Whatever he tells you, do it. Jesus will do something about this. 
Uh, by the way, if you sort of go, what's the significance of running out of wine at a wedding? Um, these weddings run more like seven days than seven hours. Uh, so it's really quite a catering challenge. I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding with a catering challenge. Uh, Naomi and I went to one wedding where uh, the core of the main meal was a chicken dish, kind of wrapped in a slice of ham or bacon. Bacon, And uh, everybody there, including us, when we peeled our slice of bacon back off, could see that the chicken was still translucent. And uh, every last dish had to be sent back to the kitchen for about another half hour. It gets worse. I had a friend who had his wedding in uh, Brazil, and uh, the, in fact, Argentina, Brazil, either side of the border, I forget which side. Uh, the, the chicken came from the other side of the border in a truck. Evidently, the refrigeration hadn't been wonderful along the way. And so in that case, everyone who got the chicken didn't just have to send it, well, I suppose they sort of did have to send it back. <laughs> well, you get the point. Everybody who attended the wedding uh, Got a terrible case of food poisoning, including both bride and groom. I hope nothing like that ever happens to you when you're in charge of a wedding or when it's your daughter and you're sort of overseeing events. You can imagine the embarrassment. No, there's a kind of a social crisis here. Uh, Jesus really has the chance to save someone from a, a great deal of shame. And this is an honour-shame society, so being shamed publicly really cuts deeply in a society like that. I don't think it doesn't affect anyone in any society, but a society that's really geared towards honour and shame, to, to fail publicly uh, is just, you, you would kind of rather die in a sense. Um, and so this is the scene. I'm interested in these jars. I want to learn more about these because they're massive. None of us have jars nearly this big. They're kind of bathtub size in what they hold. So once you fill them, they aren't going anywhere. Um, and they're primarily for washing rather than drinking. They're not the water supply for drinking. They're actually for purification. So there's a little bit of a flag being waved in this passage to be aware of uh, the Jewish cultural scene and what Jesus is going to say to it because he's always kind of shaking it up. And so Jesus d does act. Fill the water jars with water. They fill them to the top. And then he told them, draw some out and take it to the head steward, the the guy in charge, like the, kind of the best man, the MC, the guy in charge of the whole um, event. When the head steward tasted the water that had been turned to wine, not knowing where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, he called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and then the cheaper wine when the guests are drunk, can't tell the difference, you've kept the good wine until now. So if you imagine miraculously good wine, it must be great. It makes the good wine look bad by comparison. Uh, now, I went to a, quite a conservative university in the States, a Christian university, and uh, we were obliged, if we went to that university, to go to quite a their very conservative church they had in the same town, about 2,500 people in the congregation, and they were sensitive to things like Christians drinking alcohol. Um, some of you might be as well. And so I remember the pastor talking about a passage like this, and he said, well, we must understand that the Greek word wine, oinos, has a broader range than our word wine, and it can cover things like grape juice and, uh, convert to American for a sec, grape jelly, which means grape jam, right? However, I feel safe in eliminating grape jam from the possible meanings <laughs> of this word. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's not uh, on the cards. You've saved the base, best grape jam till now. Uh, and we've probably got to face it that there's some alcohol in it. 
But they did drink it for their main drink, so they didn't have it quite as strong as we do, or you'd be you know, semi-plastered all the time. <laughs> so this is the first sign by which Jesus reveals himself. And if we're going to ask, why is it a sign? Why does it communicate? How, what does it have to say? Uh, there probably is a statement along the lines of Jesus' old wineskins and new wineskins in other parts of the Gospels. So uh, this has been water for Jewish purification, and now it's wine. And that taps into a whole series of Old Testament passages that present what it's going to be like when the kingdom comes. And uh, probably the best example, if you've uh, got your Bible or device and want to flick over there, is the end of Amos, Amos chapter 9. It talks about the hills flowing with new wine and the the, um, sower overtaking the reaper because the harvest is still happening when it's time to start next year's crop. And it's all portrayed in terms of wine, that that's the thing that's so abundant. So by the time Jesus does this miracle, abundance of wine from that and other passages probably has this kind of end times association. You know, when God moves, when the kingdom comes, when things are renewed, when oppression ceases, when the world becomes the way it ought to be, at least for us in Israel, they'd be thinking, uh, abundant wine, fresh wine, new wine, that'll be a mark of the new age. So everything Jesus does has this symbolic value to it it's not just a pragmatic thing filling a need here but he's actually um, waving a flag that they're going to understand on the basis of their scripture and their culture that's why we have to do a bit of work when we're trying to understand the bible to regain access to those cultural backgrounds to learn our old testament better so that when we see these new testament signs being waved we, we pick them up we pick up those signals that the audience of jesus would easily pick up So he's saying something a little bit like the new wine in the old wineskins. This is a new dawn. This is a new age. And it's not a new age of really austerity and and restraint and restriction. It's actually a new age of freedom and celebration. Uh, It's an age for wine rather than water. It's a brighter time. It's a better time. Now, every sign like that is suggestive, isn't it? It doesn't answer all questions. It doesn't doesn't, um, end the debate. It just whets the appetite. It just makes people want to know more. It seems semi-secret in this case, doesn't it? Jesus, there's no indication that Jesus sort of gets up at the end of feast and says, let me tell you what was going on there with the wine. You know, I'll just explain it all. Uh, the only people we know from this passage to know are his own disciples, presumably Mary, she seems to have stayed on top of things, uh, and the servants. It says that they, they know what has happened. So it's a kind of a semi-secret sign but Jesus' signs are going to become increasingly explicit, increasingly open. So this, says verse 11, was the first of his miraculous signs in Cana of Galilee. In this way, he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, there's a couple of reasons why John might use the word sign rather than dunamis, you know, miracle, um, compared to the synoptics. We said that one was that it's communicating something. There's a couple of other reasons. One is that there was a literature in the Greco-Roman world of uh, what happens when God reveals himself in human form and the, the word sign was associated with that, semeon. Uh, you would see indications that God was revealing himself in a person. And in the Old Testament, we have the background in the book of Exodus where the first two-fifths of the book is really about God revealing his power to different individuals and peoples through signs. In the Greek Old Testament, we use the same word, signs, again and again and again. So the plagues, 
were called signs. Uh, the fact that Moses could throw his staff down and have it turn into a snake, that was called a sign. And uh, these, this word is abundant in the first part of Exodus until they're out of the land, and then it nearly stops entirely. So who was the sign for in the book of Exodus? First of all, Moses needed to see the signs and understand who the Lord was. As he began to comprehend, the Israelites needed to see these signs, and they needed to co- comprehend that God had come and taken action on their behalf. This is more or less the order in the book. And then Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they were going to have to see the signs of God's sovereignty and realise that uh, this God that they associated with this little desert tribe had sovereignty throughout and could tell him what to do as well. So Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh, the Israelites, the Egyptians, they're all being confronted with these signs uh, so that they know they're dealing with God. And often the word glory is used as well, right? The same word, and again, via the language, it's the same word specifically. When God guides the people with the column of cloud by day and the column of fire by night, that's a sign as well, and it's a sign of his glory. So at the, at the final sign, it's really almost the final plague. We don't count it in the ten, but at the crossing of the Red Sea, there's another kind of plague of sorts on the Egyptians when the Egyptians are caught uh, under the water. And the conclusion to that chapter, though it doesn't use the word sign, it says um, this was the way the Lord revealed his mighty hand to the people of Israel. And they saw and they believed. They believed in God and they believed in Moses, his servant. So perhaps we ought to be drawing a little bit of a parallel there because the point here is that, once again, it's the glory of God being revealed uh, through the agency of his chosen servant, through the agency of Christ. And we've been set up for that by the first part of the gospel. So what does the gospel prologue say about the glory of God? It says, um, uh, we, uh, let's just read it. <laughs> I won't be able to quote it. I'll forget it. Here we go. One uh, fourteen. It's talked all about the word. And for the first time, it says in chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and took up residence among us. Uh, one or two of you might know what the... the connotation of that word for resonance is in 114 it's really camping we would use the word camping for that word the word became flesh and camped among us and it's the word that you would use for staying in a tent in a tabernacle it's another connection with exodus and it's saying just as the last thing to happen in the book of exodus was that the glory of god came down and occupied the sacred tent in this case The glory of God reveals himself to these people by coming down and occupying or coming revealed in, coming uh, tented in flesh, coming incarnate. And the verse says, We saw his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth, who came from the Father. So verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, but the only one, himself God, who is in closest fellowship with the Father, has made God known. So this is the glory that's being revealed. Uh, the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Uh, and the disciples respond in the right way. They respond in faith. They respond believing. It's them, them who are going to be um, his faithful witnesses. It's th- them who are going to receive the encouragement at, for the whole Last Supper discourse, chapters 13 to 17, witness his crucifixion, his resurrection, and then go forward in his name. So... Drawing on the way the whole gospel works, I want us to think about what these signs mean for us and what access we have to them. 
one of the things that can frustrate us is we sort of go, well, it must have been amazing walking around with Jesus and watching the miracles that he did, but that is not available to us. It's not even close. We're not one generation down the track. We're not two generations down the track. It's 2,000 years. It's way out of access. If we want historical certainty about the things Jesus did, it's no longer possible. Historical certainty is just not accessible that far down the track. Oh, that it was. Oh, that I could have that assurance. Um, that I could have that proof that I would get if I was watching these things, like a disciple, seeing these signs. Then there would be no doubt. There'd be no hesitation. Well, I think the Gospel of John is actually written for those who are removed from the scene, who are out of access. There are little clues all the way through the Gospel. So in the passage about the Good Shepherd in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I have other sheep that I'm going to bring into the fold besides the sheep that naturally belong there. That's really a hint of bringing in Gentiles. By definition, they're not there. By definition, they're not part of Jesus' ministry, with very rare exceptions. So I have other sheep that I'm going to bring in. Uh, chapter 12, he says, um, those who believe in me, um, uh, the Father and I will be with them and, and dwell in them. Uh, suggests that there are some who are remote, that don't have direct access to Jesus and are going to have to um, know him differently than the disciples do. The high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 uh, talks about those who will believe in me through the witness of the disciples. It's clearly a kind of a second generation reference. And then Thomas Right, really, the climax of the gospel is Thomas facing Jesus. It's encouraging to people like me that Thomas was a skeptic too. Wasn't there to see the initial resurrection appearances. Wasn't there when Jesus first appeared in the upper room and basically says, look, you know, I'd have to see it or I'm not going to believe it. You know, um, there might be some kind of a delusion affecting you guys. Uh, you know, seeing is believing. I, I can't do it unless I'm shown. And kind of on behalf of all the rest of us, Thomas has his encounter with Jesus. Uh, it's as if we can kind of vicariously face Jesus through him. He gets to see the wounds, to see the body, to see that Jesus is there in the flesh and say, my Lord and my God. If, forgive me our digression. I thought this was fascinating. When the Gospel of John was written, it was in the era of the Roman Emperor Domitian. And in the era of Domitian... Uh, with typical humility, he made sure that all the Roman coins said on them, Dominus et Deus, which is Lord and God, referring to him. <laughs> so isn't it interesting that John's gospel took the phrase that was essentially on these Roman coins and said, you know, let's apply it to the right target. Uh, it's certainly not a Roman emperor. But Thomas confesses in a way on behalf of all of us. And what does Jesus say back? I reckon you've probably got it memorised, many of you. Uh, you've seen and therefore you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Because the gospel is very conscious that its readership is in those shoes, unable to see Jesus but needing to believe uh, in any case. So believe on what basis? What, what fodder do we have for believing when we're this far away? 2,000 years, other side of the globe, unfamiliar culture, lots and lots of barriers, lots of distance. Um, you know, this, this mustn't turn into an in-house conversation where we just persuade each other that what we're into is true. You can drive around the city and see all lots of funny little buildings um, visited by funny little groups of people who believe something funny from hundreds of years ago. Okay? Size is not a reassurance by itself. Okay? You can drive past Christadelphian halls, you can uh, run into um, 
you know, all these funny little things that sprung out of the 17th and 18th and 19th centuries. You might see a Mormon tabernacle and wonder what goes on in there. Um, it's not just kind of mutual conversation and reassurance that can um, undergird our faith with truth. So what does the Gospel of John give, give us? And what's the place of signs? The Gospel of John concludes after the confession of Thomas. Um, you know, look, I might go directly there too because I want to get it exactly right. Very end of the chapter. Thomas says, my Lord and my God, in 2028. Jesus said to him, you believe because you've seen me, or have you? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And then the writer concludes the body of the book. Now, Jesus performed many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So he's confronting us with this very choice. You have the record of these signs that Jesus did. I've chosen a set of seven and then one or two extras like the one in 21. I've chosen these so that you have the apostolic testimony to what Jesus did. You, via scripture, via the writing, you're confronted with these things that Jesus did and you're in a position now to make a decision as well. You have these signs. It's interesting that the signs only last until chapter 12. Those who are kind of on the inside, the disciples no longer need signs, what they get is the witness of the Spirit. So Jesus says to them in that discourse, after I go, I'm going to leave with you another comforter. He'll stay with you always. He'll communicate what you need to know from the Father. And you will have guidance. You won't be left abandoned or orphaned. You'll know what to do. You'll know how to live. I'll leave my Spirit with you. So that... Still today, we have the external witness of Scripture. And you read through the Gospel of John and you just realise, I'm being confronted with a decision. I'm either going to accept who Jesus claims to be on the basis of these signs or reject it. Uh, I can join the kind of the majority of Jesus' audience and most of the Jews and decide, no, those claims are false. I can join the minority with the disciples and say, yeah, I see in myself a disciple too. I recognise the glory of God in this man. And then, inducted as disciples, we experience the witness of the Spirit as well. There's another kind of sign that I'm interested in, and I'm, I'm drawing up to a close here. And that is these little God moments that we can find happening in our lives from time to time as well. Maybe the best illustration I can think of one of these uh, is a friend of ours from Brisbane. Naomi and I were involved for five years in a church in Brisbane at the kind of the, the bottom shelf of the pastoral team. And we were involved with a group of kind of young, adult, young adults from 25 to 40 or so, if that encourages you, that, that label. <laughs> uh, and so uh, one couple that we knew, the, uh, an Australian woman had gone to Germany or had corresponded um, online for a long time and then gone to Germany and married this chap and come back. But she was a Christian and he wasn't. And we maintained the friendship for um, sort of three, four, five years, mainly through online chess. That was my ministry to Klaus <laughs> and home group. Uh, we, at the end of our time there, we went to the church at Mwilumbar and uh, said goodbye to Klaus and Gail. And then they contacted us something like six months later, I think. It wasn't all that long. And he had come to Christ and he wanted me to baptise him. Uh, it was the only baptism I did in that time at that little church, actually. 
And the little sign that he'd received from God was that he and his wife, Gail, were sitting in some little church. It wasn't the one we'd been going to. And when communion was held, there was just one glass full of juice left uh, when everybody else had been served. And for him, that was his little sign uh, that God had room at the table for him, that he was inviting him. Uh, It worked. That was clear enough. He came. Uh, I've no doubt that he's you know, walking with Christ to this day. I'm imagining and I'm kind of trusting that if you look back at your life, you've had these little kind of moments of insight where God communicated to you, got your attention in some way like that. And, and those things are all so original that I couldn't begin to guess what it was for you at those different times. I've had them. I've even had some, you know, one or two this year that I can think of, though I'll say that they're rare. If you're thinking of one, I just wonder if they come along as often as you'd like them. Like, there's a little thrill that happens when you feel like God has spoken to you, when you feel like God has communicated something through a sign, a symbol to you. There's a little thrill, there's a little buzz that comes. And you think, man, you know, it'd be great if I could just have this daily, you know, uh, even more frequently. Um, you know, God, I wouldn't know what to do with my day. You know, every time I'm about to get off track or fall into temptation or just be uh, a general annoying person, um, you know, God could sort of grab my attention with a sign and say, you know, um, call me to higher obedience, call me to holiness, um, help me to make that big decision. You know, why can't there be kind of a lot more guidance and a lot more, why can't God be a lot more visible? Really only occurred to me this morning, actually, that the way that these signs in the Gospel of John essentially stop at chapter 12, there's the reassuring one in chapter 21. Maybe that's like that exception. By and large, the people who believe in Christ already don't need him as much as those who don't yet. And so the signs in John are shown to those who don't yet believe, primarily. That's their primary purpose. What primarily is devoted to the person who does believe is the witness of the Spirit. I'm just going on the Gospel of John. I decided not to make it a whole New Testament theology study. Uh, But just in the Gospel of John, the signs are for those who don't believe primarily, primarily, and the work of the Spirit is for those who do. Now, uh, I think here of C.S. Lewis because he, in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, talks about little kind of uh, God moments like that. And they're very important to him early on. They're really critical to him coming to to faith. And then uh, he kind of returns to the topic occasionally and then towards the end he says, so what am I saying about those? I don't know if he uses the word signs, but I'll call them signs. He says they actually have gotten more and more scarce the longer I've been a Christian. And he says actually they are just signposts. They're pointers along the road. They're not the goal in themselves. So if a bunch of bushwalkers are standing around Um, thrilled about a sign and just leave their focus on the sign, they're kind of missing the point that the sign is to point them down the road to where they're going. And I figure the more mature you become in Christ, you actually don't need quite as much assistance to live for him. And the signs are really primarily to get you in the door at the front end, primarily to help you to come to terms with who Christ is and with his identity. So it may actually be a function of our maturing that these things become rarer because we're needing them less. We're needing less assistance. We don't need our elbows held as we walk quite so much. 
And I just think it's fundamental to the way God works with us uh, for him not to prove himself to us every day. Uh, in a way, I think that would kind of be cheating. <laughs> I think a big part of walking by faith is not having proof uh, and um, columns of fire and cloud every day. I think mostly we have to learn to do without them. But I just think it's fantastic that at times God says, right, I think this daughter, I think this son, I think this is a good time for a sign for them. I think this is a moment when they could use my assistance. And he breaks through. What's the right response when that happens? It's the disciples' response. It's not to sort of pick it apart and and second-guess it until it's gone, until all the wonders evaporated, until we've convinced ourselves that we're having ourselves on. I think the right response when we realise God has broken through with a bit of extra light uh, is to respond in faith the way the disciples did and and let it encourage us. I like the way those signs are tailor-made to who we are and where we are. It just shows that God knows us. Uh, And so I trust that when you really need one, you get one, but you can't generate it. God retains the initiative of giving those signs. Uh, We can't uh, order them. We can't submit an order and get one when we want. God gives us them when he knows we need them. So let the Gospel of John encourage your faith and remember that it's presenting us each, as we go through each of these, uh, from Jeff and others, it's presenting us with these signs that, so that we'll know who Jesus is, even though we can't be there. And we can make an informed decision ourselves. If we've already made our informed decision, it helps us to realise more clearly, this is the Lord with whom we deal, the glory of God, uh, enfleshed in Christ. Thanks.